from the corner of 16th and Peachtree Street, right next to the High Museum of Art in Midtown Atlanta, welcome to the First Presbyterian Church. I'm Senior Pastor Tony Sundermeyer, and I want to thank you for tuning in to today's broadcast. And I would invite you now to join us in the worship of God. We have the Gospel of Matthew, the 20th chapter, verses 1 through 16. Continue to listen to God's word to you and to me. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for the usual daily wage, he sent them into his vineyard. When he went out about nine o'clock, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And he said to them, you also go into the vineyard and I will pay you whatever is right. So they went. When the landowner went out again about noon and about three o'clock, he did the same. And about five o'clock, he went out and found others standing around. And he said to them, why are you standing here idle all day? They said to him, because no one has hired us. He said to them, you also go into the vineyard. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his manager, call the laborers and give them their pay, beginning with the last and then going to the first. When those hired about five o'clock came, each of them received the usual daily wage. Now when the first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received the usual daily wage. And when they received it, they grumbled. They grumbled against the landowner, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for the usual daily wage? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last the same as I give to you? Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or are you envious because I am generous? So the last will be first and the first will be last. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you join me in prayer? Lord, break open uh, this ancient word afresh to us today so that we would be different people than those who tuned in, who logged on, participating in this worship, that we would even be more like your son, Jesus the Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, the parables of Jesus oftentimes contain a plot twist. They contain some sort of surprise that will catch us off guard. Characters in Jesus' parables often say things or do things that strike us as odd or unexpected. Sometimes those characters even say things or do things that are impractical. Sometimes they say things or do things 
that seem unfair. Sometimes they say things and do things that, frankly, are offensive. For example, it goes against the religious assumptions of Jesus' day that a Samaritan would be called good even after they have shown mercy and compassion to someone on the roadside who had been injured. It seems uh, impractical that a shepherd would leave 99 sheep behind and go after one sheep that is lost. It seems a bit excessive to purchase land, to purchase a field, just because you found a single pearl in it. It seems unfair that a lost and wayward son would be welcomed home with open arms by a forgiving father and even celebrated with a party to end all parties when the older son, the older brother, never had a party. He never even had a, a special dinner, even though he was perfectly pious and faithful to his father and his father's household. It seems a bit radical to invite and include the poor and the destitute and the lame and the marginal to a great feast. It seems bizarre to give up our seats of honor, seats that we deserve to give them up in humility. It seems bizarre to think that the last will actually be first and, and the first will be last. It, it seems a bit punitive that one would be judged so harshly when it comes to neglect of the hungry or the thirsty or the naked or the sick or the stranger or the incarcerated. It seems counterintuitive that, that God would identify so profoundly and so intimately with persons such as these. Yes, the parables of Jesus land in a very odd way for us, just as they landed oddly in the first century context. The parables of Jesus will also uh, challenge us. They, they, they will needle, they will dig, sometimes they will even irritate, sometimes they will render judgment, not for judgment's sake, but for the sake of redemption, for the sake of transformation, for the sake of, a, of an opportunity for us to reorder our lives around the kingdom of God. This parable that I, that I read for us today, often called the parable of the workers in the vineyard, uh, totally fits the mold here. It fits the paradigm of the parables that we know in the New Testament. It is odd. It, it, it's strange. It, it kind of lands for us in, in a difficult way, especially for those of us uh, in this contemporary setting, those of us committed to meritocracy, those who are committed to capitalism, the idea that the kingdom of God is like a landowner who would reward workers the same exact wage, regardless of the hours worked, is an affront to both our sense of fairness and everything we know about the way a commodity-producing workforce should or should not be compensated. There's a challenge here, and, and the challenge only expands as we remember that any time Jesus speaks about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of, of heaven, he, he's not actually talking about 
heaven, uh, the world beyond this one. Jesus is not talking about life after death. He's actually talking about the inbreaking of the kingdom of God now in real time, the reign of God on earth. That's why Jesus teaches his followers to pray, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This kingdom is among us. This kingdom is breaking in. What Jesus is describing in this parable is that somehow, in some way, this story must be enacted. It must be embodied. It must be experienced in our lives on this side of eternity. This is one of my favorite parables, and I think it's worth our time to actually go back and start from the beginning, uh, to, to walk it through and open our hearts and open our minds and open our hands to a, a word that I think will, will challenge our assumptions about God. I think it's a word that will challenge our assumptions about ourselves. I think it'll challenge our assumptions about our neighbor, about the world, how it works, and how it ought to work in God's imagination and God's economy. So right at the beginning, I think it's safe to say that the landowner represents God in this story. I don't think we'd have a lot of dissent on that claim, that the landowner represents God in this parable. And the first thing that seems strange to us in this telling occurs when we realize the landowner himself goes out to find workers. It's not a foreman. It's not the manager that we hear about later in the story. It's not a servant. It's not the chief wine steward. It's not the chief operating officer. It is the landowner himself who goes into the marketplace looking for workers. The landowner is the one that's going to make the deal personally. The landowner is going to meet those workers face to face and invite them into his vineyard. It is not an invitation that is done by proxy or on behalf of him. He does it himself. The theological parallel is made when we think about our, our convictions and our confession of who Jesus is, what the church has said about Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus the Christ, for over 2,000 years, that he is, in fact, the incarnation of God, that he shows up in the marketplace, that he shows up in the world, and he shows up looking for workers. He shows up looking for us to pursue us with a, a relentless love, to pursue us with an invitation to purpose and an invitation to human fulfillment. Jesus pursues us not by proxy. Jesus pursues us personally and, and offers us work in the kingdom offers us a place at, at, at the table, offers us a spot in the, in the vineyard, a work that is rooted in love, work that is purposeful and good, work that will bear fruit, not just in our lives, but in the life of the world. As the story moves on, we, we learn that the, that the landowner does something else that's strange. He keeps going back to the marketplace to find more workers. His actions lead us to believe at least two things. First, there is more work to be done. 
If you're going looking for more workers, there's more work to be done. And second, there is actually room for more workers to be added. There's enough for more workers to be added. The landowner goes out at nine o'clock and then noon and then three o'clock and then five o'clock with only one hour left in the workday. There's more work at the vineyard and there's more room for workers to join. Here's an encouragement and an invitation to consider right from this particular act of the landowner. Don't ever think, don't ever think that God has no need for you. Don't ever think that the work is done. Don't ever think that God does not want you to be a part of the labor in the vineyard of the kingdom of God. Don't ever think, no matter the, the, the quote-unquote time of day, no matter what season of life that you are facing, that God has no use for you. That God is not looking to expand the, the kingdom's workforce and, and is looking to bring you on property, to bring you into the vineyard to produce fruit for the world. So the landowner brings these workers on throughout the day. And these workers are described to us, at least in the English translation, as ones who were idle. Now, now many times when we hear that word idle, uh, many times, at least for me, I, I think of that word in a pejorative way, right? We, we might think of, if you're like me, when we hear that word idle or idleness, we might think of uh, someone being lazy or we might think of laziness. We might think of a, a lack of, of motivation or sloth or, or apathy. When someone's idle, we, we may think of them in a pejorative way. And so there's a tendency when we read this text and we see the English translation and this word idle, that these workers were, were idle. We may have a pejorative view of them. The problem, however, is that idleness is not the best translation of the Greek word here. The word actually literally means without work. It says nothing about apathy. It says nothing about, about laziness. It's a description of their reality. They are people without work. They have no work. It's not that they didn't want to work. It's not that they were unmotivated to work. They literally did not have any work. Remember, the, the workers called upon uh, at the five o'clock hour are asked by the landowner, why is it that you're standing around idle? And they respond with the most obvious answer, uh, because no one has offered us a job. No one, has, no one, rather, has given us work to do. And the landowner says, come, let's go. There's work to be done, and there's room for more workers. Now, now it's here I want to say something about, about work. And, and when I'm talking about work right now in this sense, I'm, I'm talking about our literal work, our occupation, uh, what we do that occupies our time, how we make our way in the world. If you're a young person, if you're a student, uh, your occupation is school your occupation is your academic responsibilities. All of us have uh, an occupation. I'm thinking of, of the kind of work that, that we do each and every day that is part and parcel of what it means to be us and whatever that looks like for you. 
Specifically, though, I am thinking about uh, these uncertain times, economically speaking. And I'm thinking about the many folks that I have engaged with over the last several weeks who have been furloughed, who have, who have lost their jobs, who have been offered early retirement as a way to, to cut personnel costs. In our city here in Atlanta, corporations like Delta and Coke are right in the thick of these conversations. And one of the things I, I worry about as a pastor one of the things I worry about is, is, is whether, whether you have a job or not, one, one thing I worry about is that your dignity or your value or your worth only comes, only comes as a product of your occupation or as a product of what you produce or how much you earn or what kind of grades you get or what kind of school you get into. Folks who have retired sometimes struggle with these, with these same things. Who am I now that the work is done? Who am I? What's my value? What is my, my worth now that I'm no longer working? I think one of the corruptible lies of contemporary society is that a person's dignity or a person's worth or a person's value only comes from their work or only comes from what they produce. I mean, think about it, right? When a, when a child is born, we say they have dignity and value and worth before they can do anything. We attribute value to them before they can produce anything. Many of us say that that, that child actually has worth and dignity before they're even born. But, but something happens Along the way, when we enter this, this existence, when we enter the earth, something happens along the way. We, we, we start to believe that our dignity has to be earned, that our value has to be earned. Praise and adulation will come to us uh, when we achieve, when we're ambitious, when we succeed, when we accomplish. And in turn, criticism and disappointment comes when we don't live up to the expectations that we set, that others set, that the world sets, or we perform in some substandard way. And many of us, many of us have become convinced that our dignity and our value and our worth rises and falls in relationship to our occupation or in relationship to what we produce. But in the kingdom of God, all of that is turned inside out and upside down. Our dignity and our value, according to the kingdom of God, precedes our work. Our dignity is not a byproduct of our work. Our work is actually a byproduct of our dignity. How we move and act and the choices we make in the world are, are rooted because we're chosen by God, because we are loved by God. We are declared to be children of God. We're like the idle ones, right, in the marketplace, chosen before we have lifted a finger, chosen before we've proven ourselves. For the workers at every hour, whether it was 6 a.m. or 5 p.m. and all the workers in between, the work only comes after being chosen. They've not proven themselves worthy, but the landowner declares them worthy to be part of 
the vineyard operation to be part of the kingdom of God. Our dignity and our value and our worth rest in God's choice of us. And it's that choice, I believe, that moves us and compels us to be faithful in whatever work that is in front of us, whether it's our occupation or our vocation, whether it's secular or, or sacred, whether it's in an office or in the, in the vineyard of the kingdom, that it's that choice that God has made of us that motivates and compels us to work in the vineyard. So a pastoral word right now, especially for those who are unemployed, for those who are underemployed, for those who are wrestling with these questions in retirement, for those who are so beaten down by the competition to meet the expectations that are put in front of us, God has chosen you and your dignity and your worth precede your work. It precedes what you produce in and for the world. Finally, we cannot conclude, I think, a reflection uh, on this text without saying something about the compensation that is offered to all the workers, right? I mean, this is the punchline of the thing. It's also the gut punch of the story, right? The workers hired first complained that those who came after them received the same exact compensation. They say to the landowner, you have made them equal to us. Now, many scholars believe that, that Matthew's actually trying to address a particular issue within the, the context that, that he's, in which he's writing, uh, because what's happening in the first century church is that it's moving beyond just a Jewish movement. Gentiles are now uh, being added to the fold. Gentiles were, quote unquote, being made equal to Jews in the life of faith. They were rising to leadership positions. They were given equal treatment to their Jewish siblings who had been presumably there first and had worked longer than they had. And this happens in churches today as well. Every church that I have served along the way, I've heard people say we need to get new people in and we, and we need to get new ideas and raise up new leadership. And, and the church starts to do that. Every context I've ever been in, that starts to happen and, and, and people start to be raised up and they, and they start to be equal to members who had been there for a really, really long time. And then what happens is that some of those members, not all of them, but some of them begin to say, hey, they have been made equal to us. They're now sitting in the same leadership chairs. They're leading the same ministries we once led. And, and somehow in, in some way that touches our depravity and at a deep level, human beings love to show their depravity this way. They certainly are not equal to us. We've been here first. We, we've, we've been here longer and from context to context, it, it, it's the same, whether it's in a church or whether it's relating to immigration or refugees in a particular country or, or in companies or even in families, those people are not and should not be equal to us. But here's the thing. The 6 a.m. workers are just as dependent on the landowner as the 5 p.m. workers are. They were actually equal to each other 
before the day even started. They were totally dependent on the landowner. Translation, all of us are totally dependent on God equally. And the landowner was not only generous to the later day workers, the landowner was actually generous to the sunrise workers too. The landowner chooses them, chooses them to be a part of the work of the vineyard and, and, and says that he will pay them a fair wage, a, a daily wage. Now in Jesus' time, it was not uncommon for, for the powerful, landowners, landowners included, to mistreat the poor, to mistreat workers, to skimp on compensation for those in their employ. There, there was no labor department, right? I mean, there were no unions. There was no accountability. A landowner could go back on their word. They could change their mind. They could pay them little to nothing. This landowner, though, tells the truth and honors their word and gives them what he promised. The landowner is generous with the 6 a.m. workers. The landowner's generosity extends throughout the day and it extends to the compensation that, that he offers to the late day workers. He gives them actually what they need. He gives them daily bread. He gives them a daily wage. One twelfth of a daily wage would not be enough for the five o'clock workers to feed themselves or the family. The landowner knows what the worker needs and he provides it for them. And yet here are the, the early day workers complaining. But the landowner is not having any of it. He says, friends, I'm doing you no wrong. Did, did you not agree with me for the usual daily wage? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last the same as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or are you envious because I'm generous? Here's the gut punch. All of us are completely and utterly dependent upon the mercy and the, and the generosity of God. No one can stand in judgment over another. In God's kingdom, all of us have been and will be equal to one another. There is no distinction. There should never be from the lips of a Christian, they are not equal to us. That is incompatible with the way of the kingdom of God. It's willfully ignorant to the generosity and mercy God has poured out in our lives. Because in God's kingdom, we're all beneficiaries. When we recognize that truth, I, I think what happens when we begin to recognize that truth, God's mercy and generosity in our own lives, we become more generous. I think we become more hospitable. I, I think we become more gracious. And, and I think how we see ourselves and how we see other people begins to change. No longer will, will we say they are not equal to us because we know that we are all equal. We're all equal in our total and utter dependence upon the mercy and the grace and the choice of God. Amen.